We thank you for the chance to come together in your name and get in your word. And uh, God, we ask for the power of your spirit to understand uh, your hearts behind this book. As we dive into this first chapter, I pray that you would speak to each of us, that you would give us spiritual eyes to see and hear, that you would speak to us personally and powerfully. God, that we wouldn't walk out of here without something from you. We pray that we would experience you through your word today, that you would speak right to our hearts, Lord, and we would understand primarily the significance of the Holy Spirit, not just in the work of the church, but in the work uh, of our personal lives. Lord, so we pray for a fresh anointing. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Acts was written by Luke, right? I'll give you a second. You could have answered in that second. But Luke wrote Acts. He also wrote, obviously, the Gospel of Luke's. Luke, the two books actually coincide. At one point, it was one book. It went right from Luke to Acts. But when the early church fathers uh, ended up separating the books, organizing them, they put all the Gospels together, and then we start uh, Acts. So when you look at the book of Acts, we'll understand what the heart is about it. But just some more fun facts in regards specifically to Luke. Luke was a Gentile. He was a physician. He was basically a right-hand man of Paul. And we'll see Luke several times as we study the book of Acts. Now, what's important to understand is the heart and why we're studying the book of Acts here at Calvary Chapel Running Springs. What we want to do and what we're going to do is we're going to see how God forms the church, the work he does in the church, and how the church responds to that work. See, Many people, most people, not all people, but some people, teach the book of Acts one or two ways. They will either teach the book of Acts with this prescriptive style, meaning that the book of Acts, its primarily focus is to teach us how to operate as a church. Now, I have a slight problem with that. Because when you look at how God started the church, and you look at some of the decisions that these men made, these guys are flawed, okay? So there are certain errors that they made along the way. So Acts isn't a perfect example of the church. It's not a perfect example of the church. However, it is prescriptive in the sense that it gives us the best example of how God started the church and how God starts a church, okay? Other people will teach the book of Acts in this descriptive manner, meaning primarily focusing on the work of the Spirit as God describes how the Holy Spirit started that work in the church and began or brought forth or birthed His church. But really, the book of Acts needs to focus on both those things. The prescriptive side, meaning we're going to learn from mistakes, We're going to learn from a lot of successes with these men in the early church. But we're also going to focus on what God did to start his church. This description of how God moved and worked in his church. Because this isn't just describing something that God just did back then. This is describing things that God wants to do now. And we'll discuss that as we study deeper into this book. Now, if you look at the title of your Bible, when you look at the Acts, the book of Acts, it'll likely say the Acts of the Apostles. Whose Bible says that? Okay, really? Yes, it's the Acts of the Apostles, but primarily it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Okay, and why do I say that? Because the Apostles aren't acting like anything other than fools if they don't have the Holy Spirit. Okay, the Holy Spirit gives the Apostles the power to act like Christians. And that's exactly what we're going to see. We're going to see how God empowered the early church to act like the church. The title of this series is Empowered to Act. Empowered to Act. The whole book from chapter 1 to 28. 
And that's really the primary theme of this book. We'll get it from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. We'll break that down later. But when I say empowered to act, specifically that word act, I mean to take action, to do something. I'm not saying like an actor, like pretending. It's not like the Holy Spirit gives us the power to pretend like we're Christians. No, the Holy Spirit gives us the power to act like Christians, to do the things that Jesus tells us to do, the walk, to walk the way he walked, to talk the way he talked, to live ultimately the way that he lived. See, without the Holy Spirit, we can't act like the church. There are no acts or at least holy acts, without first being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, before I left Florida, I got to go to Calvary Fort Lauderdale, my old church, uh, and just go to a service. Now, this is a, a special privilege for me because most of the time um, I'm part of the service, you know, studying and teaching and all these different things. And yes, it's an act of worship, but it's more an act of worship in the context of service. Uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate occasionally just... <laughs> Being out of service and, and, you know, not having to think about anything other than the Lord. Well, I got my chance uh, the Saturday before I left and it was perfect. It just ordained by God. The, the worship was amazing, very spirit led. I was very spirit filled and I had this awesome encounter with the Lord. It was just, I was weeping like a baby. Not that you have to weep like a baby when the Lord encounters you. That's just me personally. I'm transparent enough to admit that, but it was just this experience that I had with the Lord. And I knew in that moment when God encountered me, that he was giving me something. He was giving me the power to continue the work that he started in me. He was giving me the power to act like the pastor he's called me to act, to act like the father he's called me to act like, to act like the husband and the son of God that he's called me to act like. But apart from that power, I'm hopeless. I am helpless. And so often or occasionally, God will give us these experiences with the Holy Spirit that we know that we know that he's present, that he's in the room, that he's with us. Not just the intellectual thing that we know God is omnipresent and he's here everywhere. No, when we know that we know, hey, I know the guys in the faces and girls and the faces that are in this room, but I know there's something else. And there's another person here. And that person is the person of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes as the song uh, we sang, we want to be aware of that presence. We want to know it. We want to experience it. Well, this was a moment for me. And it was a moment that I needed. Yes, again, to start this series, but also to start this season of my life this year as God will have new adventures, new challenges, new blessings, a lot of new stuff. And one of my goals this year is to make sure I'm positioning myself to be empowered by the Spirit to act the way He's called me to act. Not just do things to do things but to do things because he's leading me to do things. That my motivation, my inspiration, that every single thing I do would be because the Spirit is leading and moving in my life. See, Christianity is different than all other religions. Christianity is not just reading the Bible and trying to do what it says. I'm not saying you don't do that, but that's not the entirety of what Christianity is. That's other religions. You read these to-dos, you read these don'ts, and then you try to do it. And you do this and you don't do that. The difference in what sets Christianity apart from every other religion is that God first does the work in us and then through us. He does these things with us. He doesn't just say, hey, go do this. He says, hey, let's go do this. And that's the blessing that we have. It's God sent the Holy Spirit as the helper to help us live this Christian life. We cannot live out what Christianity teaches apart from the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, before we get into the text, 
we have to note some uh, important passages that prepare us for Acts. And it all goes back to promises that Jesus made, specifically promises that Jesus made pertaining to the building of his church. If you were with us last year, we taught through Matthew and in Matthew chapter 16, during the Lord's ministry, he says this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he says, and I Also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now a lot of people take this out of context and they think that the church was built on Peter and Peter was the Pope. That's not what Jesus is saying. If you look back at Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, or look at 15 for a little more context, He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. When Jesus says on this rock, I will build my church. He's not talking about Peter. He's talking about himself on me, on the truth of who I am, that I am the Christ the son of the living God, I will build my church on that truth, the truth of my divinity and the other truths that are taught through scripture. Peter is not the rock. Jesus is the rock. Peter is a rock. That's what his name means. But Jesus is the rock. So Jesus promises that he's going to build his church on the truth of his divinity and the truth of his word. But that's not all. In John chapter 14 The night before the Lord was crucified, he gives these valuable lessons and really specifically John 14 and 16, so much about the Holy Spirit. Jesus wanted the disciples to be aware of the coming of the Spirit. And he says in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus promises not just that he's going to build his church on the truth of his divinity and the truth of his word, but also the truth that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. Jesus has to send the Holy Spirit to give birth to the church, what will happen, which will happen later on in Acts chapter two. But primarily in this passage in Acts chapter one, the focus is the promise of the spirit. The title of this teaching is the spirit of promise. The spirit of promise. Jesus promised during his ministry that he would send the disciples the Holy Spirit. And as we study Acts, we'll see how significant this actually was. How how these guys changed radically because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. If you would with me, Acts chapter 1. Verse 1, it says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Look what he says first. Luke says, The former account. What is he talking about? He's talking about the Gospel of Luke. Luke went through the Gospel of Luke and how he formed those words. Obviously, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is God-breathed. But what he tells us in Luke chapter 1 about verses 1 to 4 is basically he got eyewitness testimonies. We don't see evidence that Luke actually saw the resurrection, but he talked to people that did. He talked to people that experienced healings. He talked to people that experienced other miracles of Jesus, that that, that talked to him, that encountered him, that heard him teach, that marveled at him as he spoke in the synagogue. So this is how Luke goes about writing the gospel of Luke. Same holds true for at least the beginning of Acts, but later on we'll see Luke is actually a part of a lot of the events later on that happen in Acts. So that's the former account that he's speaking of. Who's he speaking to? He says, O Theophilus. Theophilus means lover of God or friend of God. 
Now, we can't be sure who Theophilus is. Many suggest that he was a Roman officer or Roman official. Now, because Luke was a physician, and in that culture, often people had slaves that were physicians. It was like all the rich people, they had their physician in their house that worked alongside them and helped them and their kids when they got sick. We don't know that for sure if that's Luke's role. He is a physician. We don't know if he's a slave. And some suggest that Theophilus was his master. Again, we can't say that for certain. Some suggest, because this name means lover of God, that this is just a a name that reflects all Christians, okay? Yeah, all Christians got to be lovers of God, right? But I don't agree with that, because in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, he adds to the title, O excellent Theophilus. He's not talking about a, a general people group. He's talking about a specific individual. Who is this individual? Once again, we will not know until we get to heaven. It says to Theophilus, he writes, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, Jesus began. See, the resurrection was just the beginning of a mighty work that Jesus was beginning to do. Though the disciples, after the ascension, would no longer see Jesus, Jesus still, through the Holy Spirit, was going to do magnificent, marvelous things in and through the apostles. Again, it says, all that Jesus began both to do and teach. This is so crucial, so important. Jesus didn't just talk about it. He lived it out. After he teaches the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 to 7, At the end of 7, entering into Matthew chapter 8, we see that the people marveled and were astonished at the words of Jesus because He spoke as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes were hypocrites. They said one thing and did another, but Jesus, everything He taught, He lived out. He lived it out perfectly. Jesus didn't just teach, He also taught. The teaching of the word is so important, but it's also just as important that we live out the word of God. Both of these things are so important. Teaching the word, communicating the word, and living the word out. Many like to put an emphasis on one aspect or the other. You know, if I just live out the word, I don't have to communicate to anyone. I don't have to tell anyone about Jesus. I want them to know by my works that I'm a Christian. That's kind of good, but... Nobody's getting saved just by watching your life if you don't speak up and tell them about Jesus. Let me give you a practical example. Someone might look at your life and say, man, that guy's hardworking or that lady has so much joy and so much love and they're a servant and, and, and maybe they come and talk to you and say, hey, what is it? What is it about you that makes you different from everyone else? If you shut your mouth, they're not getting saved. You got to tell them about Jesus. You can't just live it out. Yes, you got to live it out. But you also got to talk about it. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, how can they get saved if no one's there to tell them? If there is no preacher, if no one communicates the gospel, they cannot get saved. And then there are those that just want to talk about it, but they don't want to live it out. And that's hypocrisy. But both sides are technically hypocrisy. We can't say we're living out the word if we're not sharing the gospel. Because that's part of it. That is the great commission. The point is, just as Jesus is the way, he shows us the way. And he shows us the way by teaching it and by doing it. Continuing on, it says that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. Until the day of his ascension, which we'll get into in this chapter. Jesus, he taught it and lived it until he ascended. It wasn't like Jesus, he died on the cross, he resurrected, and he said, I'm good, guys, I'm good. I did my work. I completed my work on the cross. I'm going into resurrected retirement. That's not what he said. No, he continued to do and teach all those other 40 days that he was on the earth with the disciples. He literally didn't stop doing and teaching until God the Father took him up until he ascended into the clouds. Same holds true for us. We're called to do and called to teach until the Lord takes us home. 
Some of you, and I know there are people in this room that are retired, but there's no retirement from Christianity. We're always on and we're called to do and teach until we ascend, in other words, and the Lord takes us to be with him for eternity. Jesus gives us the perfect example. He doesn't teach up until the last day. It says in verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He presented himself alive after his suffering. After he died, they all saw him die on the cross. He proved his resurrection. Infallible proofs mean you can't prove them wrong. (laughs) He proved the resurrection. This wasn't something. And this is Luke writing this back shortly after the time period that it happened. Maybe a decade, a couple decades after the resurrection. We can't be super sure on the exact date. But this is recently, somewhat recently, after the resurrection. Where many of the people that witnessed the resurrection are still alive. He says infallible proofs meaning you cannot prove that the resurrection resurrection is false he's saying i'll prove to you that it's right now we see so many infallible proofs and we spoke a lot about the resurrection as we ended matthew so i can't get into too much detail but we discussed how the tomb was empty one of the uh, most compelling arguments for the resurrection paul gives to us in first corinthians chapter 15 And he said, Jesus appeared to over 500 people. This is very significant when you look at Jewish law. Why? Because all you needed was two or three witnesses to prove something to be true or false. All you needed was two or three. Okay, out of the mouth are two or three witnesses. You know if something is true or something is false. So Jesus just blows them out of the water and he says, I'm going to give 500 witnesses to this event. And Paul, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he says many of them, most of them are still alive to this present day. So if you don't believe me, go ask them. Go ask them what they saw. Go ask them what they witnessed. Not only that, Paul's the one that writes this. And Paul was an unbeliever. You had unbelievers that... Ended up believing. Why? Because of the resurrection. We see Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. From persecuting Christians, which we'll get into later, to being perhaps the most powerful apostle that ever lived. You see James, his brother, in John chapter 7, he did not believe that his brother was the Messiah. Later on, Acts chapter 15, he becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. What happened? The resurrection happened. It changed their lives forever. They saw Jesus in his resurrected form. So, in Jesus' resurrected form, look at what he does. I love this. He says, many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Jesus, for 40 days before he ascended, after the resurrection, he was teaching his disciples. Luke talks about this a little bit in more detail in Luke chapter 24 and Luke chapter 24. And I'll tell you right now, if there was one event that I'd ever want to be a part of in history, it would absolutely be this event. So Jesus is after he rose from the dead, he's glorified in Luke chapter 24 Verse 44, he comes to his disciples and it says, Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Imagine spending 40 days with glorified Jesus and and, and he's going through the law and he's going through the prophets and he's going through the Psalms and he's going, Hey, there I am. And and this is going to happen after this. And and, and then I'm going to come back. And and then this is going to happen. He literally taught them through the Old Testament and explained to them all the things that were, all the things that are, and all the things that would come to take place afterwards. This would have been a fascinating, amazing experience. And the disciples, they got that. They experienced this time with Jesus as he explained the Old Testament to them for 40 days. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, 
And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus, he commands the disciples to stay in Jerusalem for them to receive the promise, the promise specifically of the Holy Spirit. They had to stay put to receive God's promise. I wonder what would happen if, if some of them bailed. They left town. Like, dude, Jesus is gone. I'm going too. Uh, I'm going back to, I'm going back to Galilee. I got work to attend to. I got stuff to do. Jesus said, no, stay in Jerusalem. If you want to be a part of experiencing this promise, then you must stay put. It's a charge for us. Sometimes God gives us promises that only pertain to certain locations. Sometimes God gives us promises that only pertain to here or there. And when we leave or we step outside of where God wanted us, how do we expect to experience the fullness of that promise? The disciples, yeah, they left Galilee to Galilee. Uh, you know, maybe they would have been baptized with the Holy Spirit later on. But they wouldn't have been at Pentecost and they wouldn't, wouldn't have experienced specifically the promise that Jesus is talking about here. They had to be at the right place at the right time. But remember, Jesus, Luke tells us, told them to wait for the promise, verse 4, of the Father. That's the first of four points. Wait for the promise. Wait for the promise. Sometimes we have to wait for God to fulfill his promises. Who likes waiting? Nobody, right? I don't know. I don't know anybody that does. I certainly don't like waiting, but sometimes we have to wait for the Lord to fulfill his promise. It says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering that... Uh, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, but long-suffering. Meaning, we can't take His patience as a sign of weakness. Just because God said something is going to happen doesn't mean that it has to happen right now. It could happen years from now. If God told you He's going to do something in your life, maybe He told you, maybe you're single and He told you you're going to have a wife or you're going to have a husband or maybe He told you one day you're going to have a great job or a house. Maybe one day He told you you have the gift of evangelism and you're going to travel the world preaching the gospel. Maybe He told you you're going to be a missionary in South America or Africa or somewhere and you're going I don't look like it's happening anytime soon or it says wait for the promise the promise will come we can be certain of it we see God throughout the Bible New Testament and Old Testament make people wait for his promises we see Jesus do it here he also does it in Matthew chapter 24 he says the the temple is going to be destroyed that was a promise when did it happen 30 plus years later the disciples probably like, when is this going to happen? It didn't happen until way down the road. Remember, God the Father in the Old Testament, through the Holy Spirit, gave so many promises concerning the Messiah and Jesus literally coming to earth. It didn't happen for centuries and centuries later. It didn't even happen in their lifetime. God promised Abraham that he'd have a son. It didn't happen for decades later. God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And he's not slack concerning his promises. His timeline and our timeline are very different. And that's what it says earlier in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, that one day is as a thousand years of the Lord and a thousand years as one day. So sometimes we think a promise is going to be fulfilled ASAP. That's not necessarily true. We've got to wait for it. But as we wait for it, we ought not to get discouraged because God is faithful to fulfill his promises. What was the promise specifically in this text? He told them, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. It gives you a little encouragement. Not many days. Like, can't be talking about like centuries later. He said not many days. So that gives us a little bit of a timeline. But the significant thing is what he promised them. He promised them the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, 
This is important as we study the book of Acts to understand the different operations of the Holy Spirit. The apostles, they already had the indwelling spirit, meaning they were already saved. And the world had the para, the Holy Spirit was with the world. But this was something specific to this time that God wanted to do at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming upon them. So let me explain this. You really got to look at the original Greek. Uh, this Greek word para, P-A-R-A, it, it means with, okay? The Holy Spirit is with the world. And Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, verse 17, he tells the disciples, the Holy Spirit that is with you will be in you. Well, what does this mean? What is this, the Holy Spirit operating with the world? Well, the main function of the Holy Spirit operating with the world is the Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Before the Spirit ever indwells in us, we've got to be convicted that we're sinners. That our righteousness, it doesn't line up with God's righteousness. And if we don't accept His righteousness, there's absolutely judgment. Okay, It goes from the para to the end. In the Greek, it's en. That's the indwelling spirit. The indwelling spirit, that was a new operation of the spirit after Jesus rose from the dead. In John chapter 20, verse 22, if you want to write it down, John 20, 22, Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit into the disciples. He received my spirit. This was a new function of the Holy Spirit. Now people were able to, if they accepted Christ, be sealed for the day of redemption, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us. So if you've accepted sincerely, truly, Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have the indwelling Spirit. Everybody's got the par. The Holy Spirit's just as from the beginning of creation, the Holy Spirit hovers over the face of the earth. The Holy Spirit's still doing that. He's trying to convict people of sin to point them to Jesus and their need for a Savior. The indwelling comes at salvation. But there's this other word in the Greek, it's E-P-I-A, epi, okay? And this is the upon. This is what Jesus is promising them. They're already saved. They have the indwelling spirit. He says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And that's what we'll later talk about in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now we see... The epi, the upon, was something that happened in the Old Testament as well. Um, the Holy Spirit coming upon people has different functions, and we won't get into all of it. One of the main ones is to give people spiritual gifts, okay, primarily for the edification of the body and the glory of God. But we see like Samson, the Holy Spirit would come upon him, and what would happen? He'd get real strong, right? We see Saul, the Holy Spirit would come upon him, and what would happen? He would prophesy. So this is an Old Testament thing. But this is the power that God gives us by His Spirit to do the things that He's calling us to do. Sometimes this epi, this upon, can be an encounter with the Lord, an experience with the Lord. Sometimes you connect feelings to it. That doesn't mean that there's always feelings. But occasionally, as I was speaking about my experience in Fort Lauderdale, sometimes the Holy Spirit will come upon me and upon you, And I'll just feel this overwhelming sensation of God's presence. I'll feel this overwhelming sensation of God's love, of God's holiness. And I don't know how to respond any other way but weep. And it's not that I'm crying. It's not that I'm sad. I'm just overwhelmed with the presence of God. That too is the epi, the Holy Spirit coming upon us. It's not that I'm out of control and I can't stop crying. It's like, this feels amazing. God is with me. I know his presence is right here like Oh my gosh, God, you're so holy, you're so perfect, you're so good, you're so loving. Almost like a blanket of love and holiness covering you in a moment. Again, this was the promise, that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. You shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You shall be is a promise. He will always fulfill His promises. Why? Well, in Numbers chapter 23 Verse 19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie. Okay? God is not a liar. If he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. We can count on it. He's a promise keeper. Continuing on, Acts chapter 1. Verse 6. 
Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples wrongfully assumed that the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, was connected to the Lord's restoration of Israel. Now, there's a little truth to that because uh, the Lord would, will, will restore um, those that accept Him in Jerusalem, but that's not what the disciples are talking about. They're specifically talking about the Lord's second coming. They're specifically talking about His millennial reign. Will you? When will you restore Jerusalem and set up your kingdom? But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He told them that back in Matthew chapter 24. He told them that that would happen, but it's not the same context. He's not saying, well, when this happens, this is going to happen. As we see, it'll be at least another 2,000 years before the Lord comes back. They're making this wrongful assumption that this promise connects to this promise. And they're misinterpreting the promise of the Holy Spirit. It might not be fulfilled in the way that they think. See, the disciples... They're looking for, they don't understand yet the significance of the Holy Spirit. So they're looking for the future promise. God, we want you to come back and restore Israel. When is that going to, yeah, thank you for promising me the Holy Spirit, but when are you coming back again? When are you going to establish your rule and your reign? When are we going to rule and reign with you? So they're focused on a future fulfillment of a future promise, but they're not focusing on the promise that God gave them in the moment. And sometimes we can do that as well. We get caught up with things God told us in the past that haven't happened yet. And God's telling us, hey, I want you to focus on the present promises I've given you. That promise won't come till later, but I got a promise for you now. Acts chapter 1, verse 7. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father put in his own authority. He says, I'm not telling you. It's not time for you to know when I'm coming back. It's it's for the Father. Okay, that authority is in His hands. But let's play this out another way. What if Jesus says, and He gave, gives us the date. What if He tells the disciples, "Hey guys, I'm going to come back at uh, 2018." At Rosh Hashanah. Let's just say He says, "I'm going to come back in this year, 2,000 years later." The disciples were like, dang, dude. So we're not even going to see you again until we die. Imagine the discouragement. Imagine they think, and we see through the epistles, the apostles think that Jesus is coming back in their lifetime. And Jesus communicated like that strategically. Why? Because he wanted to keep them on their toes. He wanted them to be ready. That's why when we read the scripture, though I personally believe Jesus could come back at any moment, he did that strategically. That's why he spoke the way that he spoke, because he wants us to be ready every single day, all the time. If he told them, hey, it's going to be a few thousand years, that would have caused quite a bit of discouragement. But there's a reason that the Father knows future events and we don't. What's that reason? Well, the answer is in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, the Lord desires us to walk by faith and not by sight. Walk by faith and not by sight. I'm not going to tell you every single thing that's going to happen to you in your life. Why? Because you couldn't handle it. If you knew, you would be so discouraged that you would likely give up. Now think about this. Think back to when you first accepted the Lord. Some of you, maybe it was recently. Others, maybe it was decades ago. Think about all the things that the Lord has walked you through. All the challenges, all the trials, all the testings. Yes, the blessings too. But if God showed you that as soon as you got saved, what do you think you would have done? Maybe walked away. Maybe said, dude, I can't handle all that. I can't handle every, you're going to walk me through that. I'm going to lose this person. Uh, you're going to take this from me. You're going to send me here. We probably couldn't handle it. The Lord knows what we can handle. And he knows we can only handle things in small increments. So he gives us just enough. He gives us what we need to know. When we need to know it. Nothing more, nothing less. Same thing he did with the disciples. You're not ready to know these things. If you knew them, it would affect your walk in a negative way. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This is really... The verse 
that hits home the hearts of the entire book of Acts. And it even outlines the book of Acts, which we'll get into in a moment. This is what it's all about. And what we see in this verse here is the power, the purpose, and the plan. Okay, The power, the purpose, and the plan. The power, yes, the power of the Holy Spirit. The purpose to bear witness of Christ. The plan in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. This one verse has so much in it. We could sit here for weeks just talking about Acts chapter 1-8, but we will not do that. So Jesus tells them what's going to happen when they receive this power. But the disciples, they had to believe this power was going to come in order for them to stay in Jerusalem to wait for it. This is point number two. Promises believed leads to power received. Promises believed leads to power received. I'm going to say equals same kind of thing. Um, (laughs) anyways, think about this practically. If we want to operate in the power of the spirit, we first have to believe in his existence. (laughs) We have to believe that the spirit exists. If we want to operate in that power, we at the very least have to have enough belief, enough faith to ask for the Holy Spirit. Even if you question, like, I don't understand the Spirit. There's so many things. It's such a mystery. Like, how does this work? This empowering, this epi, this coming upon, like all this stuff. It's kind of confusing to me. If you believe enough to ask for the Spirit, start there. You know why? Because in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus tells us that that God the Father, he's such a good Father. If you ask for the Holy Spirit, he will give it to you. That's a promise. You ask for the Spirit, he will give you the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't just like a one-time thing at salvation or just some worship service or prayer, whatever the case may be. This is a regular thing. Ephesians chapter 5 says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The original Greek says, be being filled. Meaning like we got to regularly be, be filled, regularly be filled with the Holy Spirit. Meaning we got to regularly ask for the Holy Spirit. This is another goal that I have this year. Some days, transparency, I forget to ask. And I'm going through my day and all this stuff's happening. And I had a source. I'm like, oh, you dummy. You, you didn't ask for the power of the Holy Spirit. Why are you trying to do this on your own? I encourage each and every one of you, ask each and every day for the power of the Holy Spirit. To live the life he's called you to live. But this power, the primary purpose, he says, is to bear witness of Christ. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon me and you shall be witnesses to me. The word witness here is where we get the word martyr from. It literally means in the Greek, the Holy Spirit will give you the power to bear witness unto death. Meaning no matter what comes in your path, the Holy Spirit, if the Spirit is upon you, you will have the power to bear witness of Christ with your lips and your lives, even if it costs you everything. Now I think about that and it's like, dude, if someone had a gun to my head or someone was threatening my family or whatever the case may be, I couldn't do that. That's the point. You couldn't. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can and you will. That's what he tells us. The Holy Spirit will give us the power to bear witness in any situation. Here's the plan. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This verse outlines the entire book of Acts. It outlines the entire book. We get the heart and we get the plan. The power, the purpose, and the plan. Acts chapter 1 verse 7, we see the apostles in Jerusalem. Okay, their primary focus is sharing the gospel in Jerusalem. Then when we get to chapter 8 to 12, we see them get outside of Jerusalem, Judea, the region of Judea, and Samaria. That's Acts chapter 8 through 12. And then Acts chapter 13 to 28, they get out of their kind of known comfort zone and they go to other places. Paul will go to Asia Minor. Other people go to different places. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll see different people encounter Gentiles and all these different things. But that's Acts chapter 13 to 28 and ultimately to this present day that we're in. The gospel is still being preached to the entire world is spreading across the world. Acts chapter 1 verse 9. Now, 
When he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So Jesus left them. Jesus ascended to heaven. And the reason he ascended instead of disappearing is because there were times where he appeared and reappeared during those 40 days. But this time he wants them to know, hey, I'm going and I'm going for good at least at least until you die and I see you again. Later, he'll come back to visit Paul, but that's an exception. But when Jesus left them, he was doing it for their own benefit. If you remember in Acts chapter six, or sorry, John chapter 16, verse 7, in John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus, as he's speaking of the Holy Spirit the night before he died, he says in John chapter 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, speaking of his ascension. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. How is it an advantage that Jesus leaves? The disciples are like, no, Jesus, we don't want you to leave. This is for your advantage. This is for your benefit. Imagine this. If Jesus rose from the dead and he never ascended and never sent the Holy Spirit. And right now, presently, as Christians, we had Jesus here on the earth. What would that look like? Uh, maybe Jesus would go church hopping. Maybe we'd get him once every few years. Jesus would come in and he'd teach a powerful message and we'd be inspired, but we'd have to wait a year or two or three because Jesus, like Santa Claus, has to hit up all these other places and then come back and visit us at the proper time of the year. Jesus in his humanity would be one place at a time. Okay, and his divinity is all present, but in his humanity... He's one place at a time. He says, I'm going to leave and send you the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit can be present with you, each and every individual forever. Each and every individual can have the helper being the Holy Spirit. And this is an advantage for us. In Acts chapter 1, verse 10, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, these two men, who are likely angels, they say, get your head out of the clouds and focus on the mission that he just gave you. Quit looking. He ain't coming back anytime soon. Yes, he'll come back in the clouds, but he's not coming back in your lifetime. He doesn't tell him that, or the two angels don't tell him that. But what it, the angels are getting at is, hey, yeah, get your head out of the clouds. The Lord has something for you right here, right now. Yes. As believers, we're called to be heavenly minded, but we're also called to be earthly useful. And sometimes we can have, we can be so focused on the Lord's second coming that we forget what He's called us to do in the present. We're in the world for a reason. And He gives us that reason in Acts chapter 7, or sorry, John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This wasn't just for the disciples. This was for all that would come to believe in Jesus. In John chapter 17, verse 15, he says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your word, your truth. Your word is truth. He says, I'm praying that God doesn't take you out of the world. Sometimes. Being honest, I pray God would take me out of the world. Just let's be done with it. Let's, I just want to go and experience heaven and be in perfect community with you. But he says, hey, you're in the world for a reason. I got you on a mission here in the world. And yes, focus on things above and be spiritually minded. But you're here right now. And I got a mission for you where you are presently. The disciples, I'm sure, wanted Jesus to say, come up, boys, <laughs> I'll take them up. Just, hey, Jesus tells them, hey, come on, come, come with me, guys. We're going to catch you up right now. But that's not what he had for the disciples. And that's not what he has for us, at least right now, until we die or he comes back. <clears throat> Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So, 
We see the disciples listen to Jesus. They remain in Jerusalem. They were obedient to the Lord's commandment while they still had to wait. And this is the third point. Walk in obedience as you wait on the promise. Walk in obedience as you wait on the promise. They did exactly what Jesus told them to do. And they waited in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. While you're waiting for the next direction that the Lord is going to give you, purpose to be obedient to the last direction that he gave you. For the apostles, in this case, it was in other words, be still and know that I am God, okay? Don't worry about it. Though I left, I'm still working and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. You got to trust me with that. And while you're waiting, just do what I asked you to do. We don't like that waiting direction. We don't like to wait. Uh, Most of us, we want to work. We want to get our hands dirty. We want to be a part of God's plan. And yes, we are called to be a part of our plan, part of God's plan. But God has responsibilities and we have responsibilities. And our responsibility is to listen to what God tells us to do. Hey, just wait. I want you to wait until this promise is fulfilled. And in all reality... If we know and believe that God is good and God is who he says he is and he is sovereign, then we have nothing to worry about. And we don't have to worry about doing the next thing because he's already prepping us for the next thing and he's already taking care of his responsibilities to get us to the next thing. The disciples listened to the Lord. They obeyed as they waited. Acts chapter 1, verse 13 And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. What did the disciples do while they waited for this promise. Yes, they were obedient, but they also engaged in spiritual things. They engaged in fellowship. They engaged in prayer. They didn't know exactly what was coming next other than God was going to send the Holy Spirit. They didn't know the, 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 the mission completely. They had a vague idea of it, but what they did was purpose to engage in spiritual things. As you're waiting for God to give you that next thing, maybe it is a promise or a direction. Do what you know to do. When you don't know what to do, then do what you know to do. Okay, I'm not sure what God has for me next. I know I'm supposed to wait here until he gives me that next direction, but I'm not going to use that as an opportunity or an excuse to put my feet up on the desk and, and check out spiritually. No, he wants us to engage spiritually as we wait. That's exactly what the disciples do. But look who is listed with these disciples. The brothers of Jesus. Remember the brothers of Jesus in John 7. They didn't believe. But now they're with the disciples. James is here. Likely Judas. Who is also referred to as Jude. Wrote the book of Jude. They're here now. But what happened? They went from disbelief to belief. Why? Because of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians fifteen seven, We see that as I mentioned before. James is mentioned with those people that Jesus appeared to in his resurrected form. Acts chapter 1, verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. So there's not just uh, 11 now. Judas hung himself which we'll get into later, but we got a, we got 120, okay? Men and brethren, Peter says, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now, there's a lot of debate 
as to whether Peter should have done this or shouldn't. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But I want to point to the positive. Uh, Peter is trying to get direction. If you look at verse 20, which we'll get into uh, based on the word of God, he's trying to follow the word of God. And remember, he pulls these out of the Psalms, these specific texts. Jesus taught them all this stuff. Jesus explained to uh, the disciples these things. So Jesus probably said, hey, this psalm speaking of Judas. This part speaking of Judas as well. This part speaking of me. Like he went through probably all of that. So Peter is understanding. Wait a minute. Remember, someone else is supposed to take the office of Judas. So, so we need to make that happen. Now, some suggest that Peter did this in his flesh. Um, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle, which we'll get into uh, in a little bit. I'll explain as we unpack this text. But first off, let's talk about Judas. In verse 18... Luke, speaking of Judas, puts in there, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. So does this contradict Scripture? I thought Judas was hung. Well, Scripture doesn't contradict itself. Both of these things happened. Judas hung himself likely because of the heat and decay and all that somehow, whether the rope snapped or his body just burst, he fell headlong onto the ground. He fell because he was hung and he burst open. Both of those things happened. Luke has just given us a, a little more detail as to the end of it. In verse 20, Peter says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. So Peter, again, he's looking at the word for guidance as he's waiting. He's trying to engage spiritually. He's trying to make a decision that he believes the Lord wants him to make. Now, is this a decision that the Lord wanted him to make? I do not know. We don't know. We can only speculate. Okay, he doesn't have the Holy Spirit now. And we'll see they'll actually cast lots to make this decision, which we'll get into in a moment. But the Bible doesn't correct Peter for this decision, nor does it condone Peter. Talk about that a little further. Look what he says here. Verse 21. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So these are the credentials of the guy that's, that, that they're going to pick. Okay, someone that's been following them from the beginning. Look, it says verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So he says it's got to be somebody that's been walking with us since the baptism of John, saw the resurrection, saw the ascension, that, that they stuck with it. They didn't walk away from the Lord. They did life with Jesus. Now, are these credentials that Jesus gave Peter? Again, we don't know. Or was this just something that Peter said, oh, I think these are the proper credentials. He, he, the guy's got to be like one of us. What we'll see is they'll choose a man by the name of Matthias. But many suggest that Paul was actually the person that was supposed to fulfill this position. Now, let me argue against that for a second. We do see that God directly, and he did come uh, Jesus came to Paul in resurrected form and he called him to the ministry right off the bat. But when you look at the credentials that Peter lays out, not necessarily the Lord, but Peter lays out, it had to be somebody that had been following, following uh, Jesus since back in John the Baptist days when he was baptizing people in the Jordan. Paul doesn't qualify for that. But again, was that Peter's qualification or was that the Lord's? I'm just trying to confuse you. Um, I really don't know the answer. <clears throat> and Paul didn't see the ascension. He did see Jesus in his resurrected form, though. 
And it says in verse 23, And they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was named Justice, and Matthias. So, I don't know where he came up with this, but he said, it's got to be one of these guys. Justice or Matthias. Does that mean those were the only two guys that fulfilled those credentials? Maybe. Maybe not. But it seems to me personally uh, that they're limiting their options. Maybe those were the only options of the 120 that fulfilled all of that. But whether they were right or wrong, I can certainly say this, we often attempt to limit the Lord's options in our life. And we'll say, is it this person or is it this person? Is it this job or is it this job? Is it this place to live or is it this place to live? Is it this ministry or is it that ministry? And what if the Lord's like, you're only giving me two options. It ain't either one of those. (laughs) It's one of these over here. You think you're supposed to be here, but I've called you over here. Are you supposed to be here? And you want to be over there. Regardless, sometimes we can limit the options and try to put God in a box, and it might not be either of them. He says in Acts chapter 1, verse 24, And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. So they're praying, they're seeking the Lord, that's good, but look what they do here next. To take part in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, casting lots was a common practice in the Old Testament. Basically, uh, it was like rolling dice. Now, is that how we should choose pastors in the church? Just, hey, this guy looks good, this guy... Boom, yeah, it's going to be this one. I'm not saying that they weren't supposed to cast lots, okay? We don't know for sure because they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. But I will say this, I think it would have been a way easier decision had they had the Holy Spirit. They wouldn't have had to cast lots. See, sometimes we can lean on what makes sense to us, what we know, and that's what the disciples do. We know Old Testament, we know Catholic. We don't know how the Spirit really works and guides and directs and helps and teaches, but we know how to cast lots. So we're going to do what we know to do. Sometimes, though, we can do the same thing. We can lean on what makes sense to us in the moment instead of leaning on and waiting for God to fulfill His promise. This is the fourth and final point. Quick one. Lean on his promise, not your understanding. Lean on his promise, not your understanding. Once again, preface this. I'm not saying that the disciples were making a bad choice by casting lots and leaning on their understanding. We simply, again, do not know. But I, again, will say this personally. I have a tendency to do this. I think many of us do. We purpose to lean on our understanding and take matters into our own hands instead of waiting for God to fulfill his promise. But what that really points to is a lack of trust. I need to do this because I'm not sure when God's going to do it. Or I'm not sure if he's actually going to do it. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. Trust in the Lord, lean not on your understanding. That doesn't mean we're supposed to be ignorant uh, walking by blind faith Christians. No, there's definitely, um, uh, there's an intellectual capacity that comes along with loving the Lord. In fact, he says, love the Lord your God with all your mind as well. So it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to be thinky Christians, but when it comes to this is God's promise or this is God's direction and it doesn't line up with my understanding, what do I follow? Do I follow what makes sense to me or do I follow what I know God told me to do even though it makes no sense whatsoever to me. See, that's what God will often challenge us with. You're going to do what you think you need to do, or you're going to do what I told you to do. Lastly, in Hebrews chapter 6, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, no, we're a little longer today. Intro added a little time. In Hebrews chapter 6, we see 
the author used the example of the promise that God made to Abraham. And what did God promise Abraham? Yes, I'm going to bless the nations through your seed, specifically through the form of a son, the promised son being Isaac. And then what happened? Abraham took matters into his own hands, right? And he slept with Hagar. And that produced Ishmael, which ultimately produced the nation and religion of Islam. See what happens when we don't put our trust in the Lord and we put our trust in our own understanding? Well, Sarah sure as heck can't have kids, so I might as well sleep with the servant. And yeah, it was Sarah's suggestion. But the author of Hebrews, he brings us back to this promise that God made to Abraham and how specifically it pertains to the promised son, meaning Jesus Christ, yes, through Isaac and that lineage, but specifically leading towards a greater promise of salvation. And it says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no other greater, he swore by himself. In other words, he swore by his name. And God's name is his character. When God reveals his name, he is revealing a certain character quality about himself. And because he could swear by no other name, he swore by his own name. Why? Because his name is faithful. His name is faithful. And he is faithful to keep his promises. Anything he says, all the promises of God are yes and amen. He cannot go back on his word. But look at this in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. Very popular verse. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. What's this hope? This confident expectation that God's going to fulfill His promise of salvation and His promises across the board. I can have this confident expectation. Why? Because I can trust God. Because I can trust His character. Because His character means everything to Him. And He would never tell me something that He wouldn't follow through with. He will fulfill His promises. But we won't see the promise fulfilled to the next chapter in Acts chapter 2. So in the meantime, the disciples have to wait. Why does Jesus give them this waiting period? Well, yes, they need the Spirit to be the church, but they also need faith. They also need trust. Remember, the disciples, they're doing life with Jesus. They see Him doing the miracles. They hear Him teaching. They're present with Him constantly, and now He's gone. For the first time, really, other than brief separations, for the first time, Jesus isn't with them. To, to do ministry and show them how to do it. So they got to trust that Jesus is working behind the scenes even when they don't see Him. That He's doing something that they don't see. And He's going to do exactly what He said He's going to do. To send them the Helper, the Teacher, the Holy Spirit to empower them from on high to do the work of the ministry. See, for the church to be the church, not only do we need the Holy Spirit, but we need to trust Jesus fully and wholeheartedly. We need to trust that he's doing things in our life even when we don't see him. Even when he seems so far gone. Even when he seems like he ascended and he left me. He's still working. He's still doing stuff. And even though maybe you don't sense his presence in the moment, be anchored with that hope back in the promises that he made previously. Because he is faithful to fulfill all his promises to us. Do you trust that? Do you trust the Lord? Do you trust the Lord to fulfill his promises? The specific ones, the individual ones perhaps that he's made to you. Can you wait for the promise when he tells you to wait? And can you walk in the promise when he tells you to walk? If we want to be like the church that Jesus started, his church, we got to trust Him and we have to trust His promises. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this book. We thank You for Your Spirit. We thank You for understanding. Lord, and we just uh, ask that You would give us the faith to trust You in Your promises, to trust You in Your character, even when things seem crazy or promises don't seem like they're likely to be fulfilled, Lord, give us that faith to trust you. In Jesus' name.